Amen. Father, as we have looked forward to the glories promised us in Christ our Lord in the testimony of these songs, and also, Lord, in the testimony of your scripture that we have confessed and we've read thus far, we pray that you would stir our souls to strengthen in our faith and in the security and assurance of our sins atoned. Lord, we pray also for our boldness and precision in proclaiming the gospel. We pray that you would use the means of this service today to equip us, Lord, to be faithful in proclaiming the message of hope in Christ alone. Father, we thank you that you have equipped your church to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ and that we bear the message of hope in him, that his shed blood can save us to sin no more. We thank you that in the full scope of redemption's power, that we are delivered from the power and the punishment and the presence of sin. We thank you that through the course of our lives, as the Spirit works his sanctifying effect, that eventually we will enter into that perfect communion with you. And every shade of the fall, whether it be incorruption of the flesh, our body, the environment, the world, and every shade of the fall that affects us so deeply in our mind and our will, our affections, and our sinful inclinations will be absolutely a distant memory, totally gone and washed away in the blood of Christ. Lord, I pray that as we open your scriptures today, we would build our faith to look forward to, to expect, and to grow in this call, and that we would announce freedom from sins washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ, Lord, to those who have ears to hear. I pray, Lord, that you would now open our hearts to comprehend your scriptures and that your spirit would use this time to do a good work in us. I also pray specifically for those who are considering baptism and will be baptized in the near future. I pray that as the word proclaims the truth and significance of what baptism is and what it represents, that you would write those truths upon the tables of their heart, that they would remember them their whole life long, and that they would be a mark and a milestone in their life, Lord, a memorial stone as it were, so as to always and never, always remember and never forget the glories of Christ died, buried, and resurrected for them. We pray all of this in his name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious gift and privilege purchased with Jesus' own blood we have today in the fellowship of the saints and in considering his holy scriptures together. Please turn with me as you're able in Exodus chapter 14. In a moment, we'll read, I'll read this chapter for you. Under this title, today's message is entitled, Baptized into Moses. This title comes, as we'll see shortly, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which the apostle, or, uh, the apostle refers to this event in Exodus 14 to help us understand something about the significance of baptism. There are more than one type of baptism, there's more than one type of baptism, that is to say, in Scripture. Therefore, the aim of this morning's message is to reveal the significance of baptism by comparing Moses and Jesus and the experiences that attended their way. Specifically, Moses in the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea, and Jesus in the fulfillment of these very things in the gospel. So, baptized into Moses, revealing the significance of baptism, comparing Moses and Jesus. As you're able, out of reverence, would you stand for the reading of God's word today? And listen as Exodus 14 comes in your ears as God's holy and fallible word. Exodus 14:1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pahiroth between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, 
They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So they made ready his chariot, took his army with him, took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, in verse 8, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Then the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea at Pahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you will, only, you will have only to be silent. Verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Verse 19, then the angel of God who was going before the hosts of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the hosts of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. And made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and the cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, <clears throat> that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, the sea returned to its normal course, and when the morning appeared, as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Final verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. This is the word of God. You may be seated. We won't cover every verse in detail by way of exegesis this morning. Our message will focus on three main interruptions in the text by the word of the Lord himself. However, it was hard to know where to stop and where to uh, start and stop in that narrative section, so I figured we would read the whole thing to get an idea, especially of the historical context, which contains, by design, spiritual realities. Baptized into Moses. We have just read the account of the Israelites being baptized into Moses, if you will. Paul explains to the early church that the experience of the people of God in their deliverance from Egypt was a kind of baptism. So a parallel text for us this morning comes by way of 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and following. I want you to know, brothers, Paul says, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And you recall in Exodus 14, that reference to the cloud, it was going before them, and then it went around behind them, them, shielding them from the Egyptians. All were under that cloud, or you could say protected by that cloud. Furthermore, 10.1, and all passed through the sea. We read of that, did we not? And then verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Furthermore, he says, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So this is a reference to Exodus 14 that speaks of the experience of the Israelites as a baptism of sorts into Moses. Paul explains to the early church that the experience of the people of God and their deliverance from Egypt was a kind of baptism. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and following expounds, proclaiming that all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. We have recognized in recent messages uh, that baptism in part is a rite of covenant head affiliation. So that experience of baptism connects you to your covenant head, your leader, your representative. God's appointed and anointed and chosen one, in this case, Moses. That is to say, to be baptized into Moses is to be counted among the followers of Moses, if you will, associated with the covenant representative, the covenant head. And so we see this happening in the case of Exodus 14 in these events. In baptism, in a baptism event, there is a sharing of the experience of the covenant member with the person and work of their covenant representative. Hence, quote, all who passed through the sea and all who were under the cloud, quote, were, we can say, we can conclude, covenantally, that is relationally, special relationship-wise, bound to God's appointed deliverer, in this case specifically, Moses. This experience of passing through the sea, recorded in Exodus 14, prefigures, this will get to the gospel and our application later, for baptism, this prefigures a later fulfillment of God's covenant people who experience a, quote, passing through the sea, quote, in baptism. So here is a tank right here. Lord willing, next week, each individual who is baptized in this tank, that is a picture of passing through the sea in the waters of baptism, following and bound to and associated with your covenant head. So kids, if everyone who is baptized into Moses was baptized into their covenant head, Moses, God's deliverer, then how about in baptism, Christian baptism? 
Who is the covenant head of Christian baptism? All who pass through the sea of the waters of uh, of baptism are baptized into who? Kids, who would you say? Let's uh, be more specific. That is correct. Jesus is correct. Jesus is the covenant head of Christian baptism. This experience of passing through the sea recorded in Exodus 14 prefigures a later fulfillment. God's covenant people who experience a passing through the sea in baptism are united in that experience or represented in that experience is a union with Jesus Christ, their leader, their deliverer. Therefore, the apostle declares in another epistle, we referenced this recently in Colossians 2.12, that believers have received the new covenant sign of inclusion, quote, having been buried with him in baptism. So everyone was saved with Moses under the cloud and in the sea. And everyone who is baptized, so to speak, has been buried with Jesus Christ. That's what baptism symbolizes. Jesus Christ, as the greater Moses, in this sense, is exalted as our covenant head and representative in baptism. Then this question arises, does it not? How much greater to be baptized into him in whom the whole fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily? Now Moses, parenthetically, Moses was a great prophet. The Bible said he was an amazing individual. But in Moses, did the fullness of the Godhead dwell bodily? Not even close. It would be blasphemy to consider that uh, or or to uh, hold that to be true. However, in Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, the greater Aaron, as Hebrews goes on to reveal him, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. So I ask you, how much greater is it to be baptized into Jesus than it would have been to be baptized into Moses? When we consider the implications of legitimate Christian baptism, foreshadowed in the Exodus, we realize that we are partakers in the greater miracle. So young people, especially those considering baptism, let me give you a would-you-rather question. Would you rather be baptized into Moses by crossing the Red Sea thousands of years ago, following God's deliverer appointed for deliverance unto the promised land, Or would you rather be baptized here in this Christian church according to the commandment of God's deliverer, Jesus, unto eternal life? Which is better, the baptism of Moses crossing the Red Sea or the baptism into Jesus at Christian baptism? That is correct. Baptism into Jesus is the greater miracle. Now, we get very sentimental and it's easy to imagine yourself in the shoes of the Israelites and how amazing that would be. And that's true. I don't want to discount that. How amazing would it have been to watch the seas of, the, of that body of water, the Red Sea, stand in two heaps, one on your right and one on your left, and then you to cross on dry ground, and then see your enemies drown in the same when they collapse upon Pharaoh and his horsemen and chariots. That would be incredible. However, when they were being baptized unto <clears throat> inclusion in Moses, in Moses, if you will, and then unto entrance into the promised land, How much better in the waters of baptism is the assurance of baptism into Jesus Christ unto resurrection, eternal life. Now it takes faith to believe that and those who will be baptized will confess that faith soon enough before you, but never forget and realize in the context of scripture, which is the greater miracle. So what can we learn from Exodus 14 about the significance of baptism as we compare Baptism into Moses with baptism into Jesus, if you will. 
Let me give you a heading. Three acts of God revealed in the baptism of Moses. Three acts of God revealed in baptism in the context here. And I believe those three acts hold application for baptism in our experience as well. What are these three acts? Well, I've labeled them as follows. God revealed himself in the baptism of Moses in three ways, three acts. Number one, a sovereign situation. God designed a sovereign situation. Second act of God, sovereign salvation. God intervened to save his people. And thirdly, sovereign damnation, which means punishment or destruction upon his enemies. So sovereignly, that is by the power of his right hand, by the power of God's will alone, he created a situation, he designed a situation, he saved his people, and he damned his enemies, condemned them to the punishment that they deserved. These are the three acts of God revealed in the baptism of Moses. This message is structured around three oracles of Yahweh, of the Lord himself, that we see in Exodus 14. Notice in verse 1, this phrase, then the Lord said. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihiroth, I always have trouble with that one, between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. So that's the first reference to an oracle of the Lord with that phrase, the Lord said. There's another one in verse 15. The, the Lord said, verse 15, to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. And then there's a third reference. Then the Lord said, verse 25 or 26, stretch out your hand over the sea and the waters that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And my submission to you this morning is that those three oracles of God, the three times in Exodus 14 when God speaks, speak to the following acts. Number one, a sovereign situation. Number two, sovereign salvation. And number three, sovereign damnation. So Exodus 14, 1 through 4. This is an event by God's design. So he tells them to encamp in front of this place on purpose. And here they are in front of Baal Zephon. They're camping, facing it by the sea. But notice, this is no surprise to the Lord. And he's certainly not nervous at what will happen next. Verse 3, for Pharaoh will say to the people. So this is God prophetically revealing to his servant what is going to happen. How Pharaoh will respond to this situation. He will say to the people of Israel, Pharaoh that is, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. So kids, think of a trap, okay? Uh, think of setting a trap in the woods. You have the bait, you have the spring, you open it up, and it's in an, a, a location, and if that animal wanders along, sniffs out that bait, and if they step in the wrong spot, what happens, kids? Snap. And then the leg of that fox or that rabbit or whatever it is, is trapped. So the Lord says that this Pharaoh will assume, wow, isn't this a fortunate turn of events? Look at these dumb people. They're wandering straight to a trap. They're going to have the wilderness on one side and the sea on the other. And this is by design. Pharaoh's design? No. Yahweh's design. Notice verse 4. The Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Who's the real fool here? Well, Pharaoh thinks the people are the fools. They've trapped themselves. Idiot, enslaved, know-nothing, geographically naive wanderers have got themselves between, literally almost, a rock and a hard place, the sea on one side, the wilderness on the other. They're sitting ducks. I'm going to go get them. Now, what is it, what was 
Pharaoh's decision in this regard, how did that speak to the hardness of his heart in this way? He should have already learned his lesson 10 times over. Kids, what did God do 10 times to Pharaoh to teach him a lesson? What did God do 10 times? He sent something. That is correct. He sent plagues. One after another after another, the Lord showed his sovereign power over Pharaoh, the once proud empirical leader, by demonstrating his superior authority over nature, over his crops, over the livelihood of the land, over the, sea, over the uh, rivers of the Nile, and so on and so forth, even over his firstborn son, his dynasty, his lineage, his progeny was in the hand of God and the firstborn across the entire land, save those under the shed blood of the Passover lamb, were slaughtered in that one event. So if Pharaoh was not a fool, he would have learned his lesson, but God hardened his heart. In other words, Pharaoh remained obstinate against the demonstrable, inarguable, obvious power of God, and he said, I don't care. I'm going to capitalize on this opportunity. The people of God are trapped. I'm going to chase them down. Playing right into God's hand when he thought the people were playing right into his. Let me uh, explain it this way. Pharaoh thought the people were trapped. The people thought they were trapped. But in reality, the people of God were bait for God's trap for Pharaoh and his armies. Do you follow that? How many times have you felt trapped? You're in a situation of God's sovereign design, but the immediate circumstances have you between a rock and a hard place, the sea on one side and the wilderness on the other. And you cannot imagine a circumstance in that high-pressure situation where the Lord has any divine purpose or there's any good that can come out of it. We can all relate, can we not? We feel that we are trapped. But notice a principle here. Sometimes when we feel that we are in a trap, in fact, God is baiting his own enemies and he's using sometimes us to do it. And watch as you pray and trust your deliverer if he will not demonstrate his glory by saving you and delivering you from his enemies. The Lord knows how and when and what circumstances he will use to do that. The people didn't know. Moses didn't know until God told him. Pharaoh certainly didn't know, but God had a plan. This was a sovereign situation. How did he accomplish it? Three phrases, I will harden, I will get glory, I am the Lord. He accomplished his plan by hardening Pharaoh's heart. On your own time later, Romans 9, 14 through 18, Paul references these moments to explain how God is sovereign even over that which we typically think is most in our control. People like to say, oh, God, you know, I can imagine him, you know, fine-tuning the universe. But when it comes to the free will decisions of autonomous man, obviously that's where God's sovereignty is limited. This is the way people tend to think about the motives, the decisions, and the will of man. And they like to fight for a little corner on sovereignty, do they not? by imagining themselves as autonomous beings. Well, Pharaoh certainly felt this way, but he proved himself a tool in God's hands. When God hardened his heart, influenced his will and, and motivations, and used his sinful direction of his inclinations to the Lord's advantage to get glory over Pharaoh, to destroy the works of the enemy, and to all the more in, in all the more amazing ways deliver his people. Now, young people who are considering baptism, on the other side of the coin, was it you softening your heart that led you to the waters of baptism? I tell you, no. Whether a heart is hardened or whether a heart is softened, ultimately it is the hand of the Lord that is in these situations directing them unto his glory. That is to say, the people didn't design their own salvation and nor did you. 
Salvation is not by you softening your heart. It's not by works. It's not by baptism. It's by the sovereign hand of God delivering you, designing a situation that caused your eyes to be opened to Him and His way of salvation, your heart to be softened to realize that your sin was a crime against His cosmic justice, deserved death and hell, and yet you cried out to your greater Moses, Jesus Christ, for deliverance and counted it joy and are looking forward to and embracing being accounted publicly in His camp through the waters of baptism, Lord willing, next week. This is something that God has done. The motivations and intentions of sinful and saved man, in these things, God demonstrates His glory. He did so at the Red Sea. He does so at the waters of baptism. The result of this situation was God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and the result of those approaching the waters of baptism is similar, God softened yours. Why? Because he is sovereign and he works out the situations in our lives to maximize his glory, to save his people, and to punish his enemies. And he is still doing this today through the proclamation of the gospel. Why does he do this? Because he wants the glory, he deserves the glory, and his justice and righteousness demand the glory. Exodus 7 says as much, 3 and 5. This is a prophecy. The Lord is explaining to Moses what he will accomplish in the near future. He says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, and the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. I will get the glory, the Lord says. If Pharaoh had been able to recapture and then commit back into slavery these people, he might have falsely assumed that, you know, he could get victory over their God. But every time he tried all the harder, the more his plans were foiled, the more he lost either his firstborn son, the livelihood of his country, or his entire army in one fell swoop. Each time he defiantly stood against the obvious revelation of the God, uh, whom, before whom he stood without excuse, at each time he defied the Lord, the Lord got that much more glory. Every time Pharaoh said, I don't care about the last plague, I'm going to continue doing my own thing. I don't care about 10 plagues, I'm going to go chase them down and get those people back. Every time he did so, he proved himself more the fool. And God proved himself more and more all the glorious. He gets the glory. This situation and its purpose, purpose was prophesied in the calling of Moses and Aaron. We have just read. He said, the Lord, to his servants, I will multiply signs and wonders. This happened in the ministry of Jesus as well. Jesus faced demons who hated the fact he was there. Jesus was tempted by the devil who wanted to foil his attempts, that wanted to foil God's plan to redeem his people. Jesus was opposed by wicked, evil forces who were selfishly advocating against him because he represented a threat to their authority. But in each situation, the design of the, of the scenario in Jesus' ministry was that with each miracle and each demonstration of the authority of the God-man, the Lord would get the glory right up to the cross itself. Now, at the cross of Jesus Christ, what do you think the devil thought? Well, I imagine he probably thought, now I've got him trapped. I've got the Son of Man, the Son of God, on this cross, and I'm going to kill him right here. But what was that situation? It was bait for the trap for the devil. 
And when the devil used the wickedness of man's hearts, the people that God had preordained to be there, as Acts chapter 4 says, to slaughter, and that most horrible crime and sin in all of history, his own son, what did he do? He sprung the trap on the devil. And as John Owen says in the death of Jesus Christ, the death of death in the death of Christ, in the death of Jesus, sin and death were defeated. And the most amazing act of deliverance was accomplished. And who got the glory? The devil? No. The Pharisees? No. Pilate? No. Uh, Those who opposed him? No. The demoniac and all the demons that inhabited him? No. The Lord Jesus Christ got the glory. These situations are by design. The Lord is pleased to demonstrate his great acts of salvation and his great acts of judgment redemptively all through the course of history. And this is true in these major symbolic times and eras like the crossing of the Red Sea. And it's true in your own soul when God defeats your own heart, as it were, and the sin that once plagued you and condemned you to hell and demonstrates his glory as you confess your sin and cling to Jesus Christ. And in baptism, you are symbolically, it is shown that you belong to him now and his experience is your own. I will harden, I will get the glory. I am the Lord and the Egyptians will know it. This phrase, I am the Lord, refers to God's self-disclosure or God introducing himself to Moses in his very high and holy and covenant name, Yahweh, which carries with it this meaning that I am. This, that means that I am a force that is self-contained, it's always been and will always be, will never fail, cannot be, uh, cannot be uh, denied or thwarted, and the, uh, this self-contained, I uh, say authority, as the philosophers or theologians call it, is part and parcel to the nature and character of God, and he revealed this to Moses at the burning bush. Kids, remember, God is a fire that needs no fuel because he has his power in and of himself. And at the burning bush, I am demonstrated in that act of self-revelation that he is the fire that needs no fuel. He is I am. Moses took off his shoes, knew it was holy ground, and confessed as much. The, uh, Moses understood that he was in the presence of I am. I am, Yahweh had revealed himself to his servant. But now I am, Yahweh was going to reveal himself to Pharaoh, his armies, and this great nation, this empire kingdom. And how would he do it? He would do it through his mighty judgments. They will see that I am the Lord. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Verse 4, Exodus 14, he will pursue them. I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Number one, act of God revealed in the baptism of Moses. It was a sovereign situation. I will harden. I will get the glory. I am the Lord, God says. And so it went. How has God revealed himself to you, those of you who are considering baptism? Has he revealed himself to you in this uh, overwhelming sense of calamitous judgment? Or has he been kind to you and revealing himself to you, much like Moses, by the proclamation of the gospel to your heart? When God shows you that he is the I am, he does it one of two ways. He does it at the bitter end of your own existence, as far as this life is concerned, in utter judgment in hell itself, or he does so by revealing his salvation, his plan of salvation to your heart, changing your heart, opening up your eyes to see that he is the sovereign over the future of your soul, and only by his way of salvation is there hope. As God has been pleased to reveal himself to you, know that he didn't have to. He could have revealed his glory in destroying you 
in the waters that you deserve, like the floods in Noah's day, or the fires of judgment at Sodom and Gomorrah, or the fires of hell reserved for all his rebels at the end of time. But no, the Lord chose to demonstrate his glory to you in saving you from your sin. Praise his name. What a glorious privilege it is to be counted among his own. Number two, sovereign salvation. Three acts of God revealed in the baptism of Moses. Number one, God was ordering this whole event, organizing it, designing it, sovereign situation. Number two, he was accomplishing sovereign salvation. Now, this is pretty incredible. One of the most dramatic displays of God's saving power in the physical realm that we read in all of Scripture. We pick up on some of this in verse 12. This, first of all, opens with the people complaining. They say, Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians, for it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. <clears throat> Human reason. You know, uh, faulty logic. What they were failing to take into account in the premise of their argument was God's sovereign plan that he would accomplish through his miraculous power. Faced only with the evidence in front of them, human reason cried out and said, You know, What's better than to be facing Pharaoh's armies trapped between the seals to be a Pharaoh and at least get, you know, three relatively square meals a day, even though we're conscripted to service of his kingdom indefinitely. And Moses said to the people, this is a voice of faith by their leader, verse 13, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. What happens next? Well, in this salvation event, I want us to notice verse 19, something that occurs. How will, God, or how will God intervene to save his people? Well, first of all, let us notice that he uses the angel of the Lord or himself revealed in theophany or theophonic form. This is God manifest in a way that the people can actually see. Notice what happens. Verse 19, Then the angel of God, who is moving before the hosts of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was a cloud and darkness, and there was a cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night with, uh, without one coming near the other all night. As I read this, I can't help but remember the promise to Abram in Genesis 15:1. I, Yahweh, you, my servant Abraham, will be your shield, fear not. And now the children of Abram, the children of Abraham, if you will, are experiencing the shielding power of Yahweh in one of the most incredible events in all of human history. Facing the technological war machine that is boasted, you know, uh, firepower above any other of the day, this enslaved, pathetic, complaining, whimpering, fearful people standing before a sea and a wilderness are shuddering and quaking in their boots, and Yahweh becomes a sufficient shield. The Lord reveals himself in cloud and fire and moves from in front of them to behind them. And what do you kids think would happen? We've asked this question before, but what do you think would happen if a soldier from Pharaoh's army tried to get through the cloud? What do you think would happen? Any guesses? Any guesses? What would happen if you tried to transgress the boundary of God's holiness without a mediator? Probably instant death. Maybe a fiery instant death. That's, I'm sure something like that would have happened. So the angel of the Lord in sovereign salvation, in spite of the fear and in spite of the lack of faith of the people, manifests himself in glorious fiery cloud and moves as a shield from, be, from in front to behind. And what does this picture in this event? Absolute salvation. This is the context 
that Moses later refers to the Lord in speaking, in introducing the Ten Commandments. Remember the first commandment? Uh, kids, who can tell me the first commandment? Commandment number one of the Ten Commandments. Shout it out if you know it. Say again. Uh, no, no, that would be um, plagues. We're looking for a commandment. What's commandment number one? I'll give you a hint. I am the... Very good. Yes, I heard one phrase in the front, one in the back. You combine them and then we get the full commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That's kind of the prologue. And then the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, uh, attentive scholars have noted the following, that the Ten Commandments are given in the context of God's sovereign salvation preceding them. In other words, which came first, the people's law-keeping or God's salvation? Which came first? God. That's right. God's salvation comes first. The people's law-keeping comes second. The people are quaking. They want to return to their uh, situation of slavery and everything in this instance. Yet God, in spite of their uh, lack of faith and, and them not deserving it, saves them sovereignly. God's salvation comes first, and then it's unto law-keeping, emphasizing to us again what we've come to know as salvation by grace through faith alone. The pattern of God's deliverance in the Old Testament is the same as the New. God saves us in spite of ourselves, and after He transforms us, He does so that we might glorify Him and walking in obedience and increasing sanctification, following His law. And when the angel of the Lord <coughs> accomplished this work of salvation by shielding the people in spite of themselves, it was a picture of this. God saves His people by His grace unto the praise of His great name. Now, the second instrument of salvation, we could say perhaps, is Moses' outstretched arm. The angel of the Lord acts on behalf of the people shielding them, and then God's servant Moses stretches out his hand. What happens, kids, when Moses stretches out his hand over the waters? What happens? Say again. That's correct. The water opens. Verse 15 picks up on the account. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will get the glory and so forth. Moses' outstretched arm. Salvation is accomplished through God's anointed and appointed significant son, deliverer. And this is pictured here. God uses Moses as an agent of his deliverance, as a son, if you will, that is anointed to lead his people forth. Was Moses in and of his own godliness and character worthy of this task? No. Moses was a mere sinner. However, he was a picture, or as we've come to know, he was a type of Christ to come. On your own time, study Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, and you'll see there that there's prophesied one like Moses who will come. A perfect one, the perfect, the greater Moses, as we read in Hebrews, in context there, chapter 3, we see that there is a greater deliverer who will come. God accomplishes his delivering act through the outstretched arm and staff of Moses, if you will, as a picture of how he will accomplish his deliverance in the future through the outstretched hands of his own son on the cross of Calvary. God accomplished salvation through his anointed son by stretching out his hand over the waters of judgment so that they might part and his people might go safely through. And then later, 
God stretched out the arms of his own son, the perfect sinless one, on the cross of Calvary so that you might pass through the waters of judgment pictured in baptism unto salvation, eternal life, your eternal home, the promised land of heaven and reunion in his fellowship in glory one day. This is the picture. He will raise up his servant unto to accomplish the sovereign salvation and the deliverance of his people. Angel of the Lord, Moses' outstretched hand, and then furthermore, they went through the sea, building on what we've just said. They went through the sea. Why? I will get glory over Pharaoh and the hosts and the chariots. The Egyptians uh, shall know that I am the Lord. The angel of the Lord shields them. Verse 21, Moses stretches out his hand in obedience over the sea. The east wind, the Ruach wind, right, with reference to the Spirit of God. This is God, the third person of the Trinity, so to speak, enacting his glorious power, the same power that formed the worlds from water in the first place, that receded the flood waters at the time of Noah, is now blowing the waters apart to make safe passage for the people. It made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. I want you to pay close attention. I'm going to give you an interesting fact about covenant headship or covenant representative. Now, think back to Exodus 2. On your own time, you can go there as well. But do you guys remember right when Moses was born, Pharaoh wanted to kill him because he was trying to kill all the baby boys. How was Moses saved from Pharaoh? Do you guys remember what his mom did? How did, how did Moses' mom save him from the hand of Pharaoh? Very good. So she weaved a basket out of bulrushes or what have you, and she put pitch on it. Now these pictures are similar to the ark that Noah prepared uh, per the instruction of the Lord for the salvation of his people. And I'm told in the Hebrew, the word ark and basket are actually the same. They're just translated different in your English uh, version. In other words, in this picture, before Moses was even conscious, conscious, when he was an infant, he experienced a salvation in an ark prepared by another as an instrument of hope through the waters that would otherwise destroy him. That, that little ark was smeared with pitch and it was placed in the waters of the Nile. And then you guys remember the rest of the story. Moses was discovered and this again was a sovereign situation. So it's God's plan to incorporate him into his calling, even through growing up in Pharaoh's own household. So if you think back to the history of Moses, now imagine Moses standing before the people. I don't know he said this, but it certainly is implied, and he certainly could have. He could have addressed the people as follows. Listen, I was once helpless before a body of water, and the Lord prepared for me a way of salvation through his appointed servant, namely my mom, years and years ago. Now, God has done this to reveal his power to save as through water and to give me the calling to proclaim to you in faith, he will do the same for you, his infant and helpless people. If he can prepare an ark for me to be saved from Pharaoh's hand through the waters that would otherwise destroy, can he not do it again? And the Lord did it. Now, think of baptism as being baptized into the experience of the covenant head. Moses stood before the people having already experienced salvation as through water. And now the people are being baptized into Moses. So in Moses, they will experience salvation as through water. Now think of baptism in the Christian baptism. There is one who has gone before you, who has experienced salvation as through water. And we'll close with this later in Matthew 12, I believe, verse 40. And this, of course, is Jesus Christ. Just to whet your appetite. 
Let us move on, though, for the moment. Sovereign damnation. Three acts of God revealed in the baptism of Moses. Situation, God orders and, uh, and uh, structures and engineers this whole scenario. Number two, he accomplishes salvation by, his, by the very uh, revelation of himself as a shield for the people, the outstretched arm of his servant, and then through the sea. And number three, he accomplishes the destruction of his enemies at the same time. Notice verse 24. And in the morning watch, now notice, this is, again, the angel of the Lord, or the Lord himself. Verse 24. In the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels that they drove heavily and the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Now, it's interesting to go back and read this account, because perhaps you were like me, and all that you remembered was the waters closed up upon them. There's a little more detail than that. There is a direct revelation of the Lord in the judgment of his enemies, causing their wheels to get all clogged up. What is this? This is the day of the Lord. This is the coming of the Lord. There will come a day, there are appointed days of the Lord's coming throughout history, and we see them. We've studied one at the Tower of Babel. The Lord came down, as it were. It's not that the Lord didn't know what was going on. It was that he had ordained a specific day of reckoning. And that was the day he, quote, came down. It wasn't that the Lord didn't know what was going on in spite of the fears of the people. And they might have been even more, they might have still been fearful, even though he had made this way, nevertheless they're being chased. But the Lord had appointed a day of reckoning. A day where his enemies must answer to I am that I am. And when Yahweh shows up on the coming, on the day of the Lord, at his coming, if you are not baptized into his servant, namely Jesus Christ, it will be a day of dramatic, overthrowing, horrific, cataclysmic, traumatic judgment for you. And this is why the Bible speaks in terms of hellfire itself as a judgment that dramatically reveals to the rebel that if they do not repent and believe, there will come a day when the Lord will visit, and on that day of reckoning, He will come, and the chariot wheels of your intentions will be clogged on that day. You won't get another breath out of your lungs or take another step, but you will stand before the judgment seat of the Lord, and the only way of escape is if your sins have been paid for by another. Remember? the one whose arm was stretched out over the sea of judgment that we deserved on Calvary as it were and paved away through the waters that would otherwise destroy us unto heavenly, glorious, eternal life. So the day of the Lord comes and it comes visiting the armies that have set their face against the Lord and his people in damnation, in judgment. The waters which the Lord spoke into being at the first, in the first place the wind of the Lord, the Holy Spirit brooded over the waters, separating the land from the same at the very beginning. The waters are obedient to the Lord. The unbeliever, the pagan, thinks of waters as a chaotic, uncontrollable sea. We practically worship what we do, in a sense, in our neo-paganism, our environmentalism, we worship the world just like the ancients did. We think that, oh, you know, the new apocalypse is 12 more years before we're utterly destroyed due to global warming. The forces of nature will rise up against us, this and that. And I quoted recently from Nancy Pelosi who said that Mother Nature is angry. No, God is angry, as I said before. And God will demonstrate his anger and using the forces of nature at times as his obedient servant to accomplish his will. And in this case, he used the waters that he used to judge the, the, his enemies at the time of Moses. He uses the waters that he separated uh, from the dry land unto the habitation of Adam and Eve. 
He used the waters that he spared Moses through in the Nile. He used the waters that uh, he parted for the crossing of the Jordan for the people unto. He used the waters that Jonah deserved to be drowned in, yet God provided a way of escape. He used his voice, his wind and waters to accomplish his will in judgment. The kids, uh, we, I've been teaching creation science class, which is pretty fun, on co-op um, Fridays. And we've been studying geological forces that testify to the amazing cataclysmic events at the time of Noah's flood. And as you see evidence in the Earth's own geographic features of the absolute, literal, earth-shattering forces at work there, it gives you a whole new sense, if you pay attention, to the fear of the Lord that is appropriate for his power to judge by water. When you look at an ocean, do you fear the Lord? You're seeing the very instrument of his judgment for all sinners that deserved it at the time of Noah. When you see canyons and earthquakes and fire and hurricane, when you see volcanoes and the like, do you recognize that you are witnessing the hand of the Lord, the finger of his power that is deserving uh, of those who are yet his rebels and are obedient to him at the point of his choosing, if and when he decides to judge man, and he will one day? These are the obedient waters that collapse. In verse 27, we read the following. Moses stretched out his hand um, over the sea. The water um, returned to its normal course, and the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Hey kids, so most of you probably spend some time at the lake in the summer. Do you ever see dead fish, you know, washed up against the beach? A, right, a fish dies, begins to bloat, it floats up to the surface, and the waves just wash it in. Well, imagine that only with the armies of Pharaoh the next day after this event. And you have a little picture of what happened. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, I should say so. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You see, God dramatically revealed himself in his saving power and his power of judgment. Sovereign situation, sovereign salvation, sovereign damnation. Now, Jesus is the greater Moses. We have seen that water is a picture, is an instrument. It's used throughout covenant history as an instrument of God's power to judge. In baptism is pictured safe passage through water unto salvation. One of the things baptism reminds us of, kids, is that the waters that would otherwise destroy us, as in the days of Noah, will not destroy us if we are baptized into Jesus Christ. Let me read you one final verse from Matthew chapter 12. Speaking to this, Jesus himself associates his experience in the grave with that of Jonah back in the day. Um, so you guys remember what happened to Jonah? He was thrown overboard, and then what happened next? Yeah, how long did he stay there? No, I'm not exactly close, though. A little conflation. How long was Jonah in the belly of the whale, kids? Three Excellent, that is correct. Matthew 12:40 For just as Jonah was 3 days and 3 nights in the belly of the great fish so will the son of man be 3 days and 3 nights in the heart of the earth So in this phrase right here in this testimony right here 
Jesus associates the drowning, as it were, or the submersion, as it were, of Jonah with his own experience in the grave. As to this point in history, God's servants have been lesser than Jesus himself, and they've never accomplished and assured in their own destruction the, salva- the actual means of salvation. They've been a picture of what's to come. But what was really needed was not just a servant who could stretch out his staff and cause the seas to part. But what was needed was a servant who would be drowned beneath the waves, as it were, in death and burial, so as to satisfy the terms of God's judgment due our sin. And so just as Jonah experienced a burial of sorts, Jesus would be buried for real, in the ground, for three days and three nights. And during that time, our greater Moses, the, our servant, or, or the one who leads us, our deliverer in salvation, satisfied the judgment that we deserved. That is to say, in so many words, in his burial, Jesus was drowned for you so that you will not need to be drowned in the waters of God's judgment. You pass through safely the waters of God's judgment in baptism because Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. He died for you. Those who are baptized into Jesus uh, participate in his experience. Remember, to be baptized into Moses was to be baptized, to be associated with one who had already gone before and been delivered in that little ark through the waters of judgment. So he would stand up and say, as we said, and so many words or the implied would be, you can, I, have been, I have preceded you in deliverance through the waters of judgment. Be baptized into me, follow me into these waters, God will provide a way. In the same way, Jesus has preceded us in death so that we can pass through the waters of baptism unscathed. In Jesus, when we are baptized into Jesus, we are baptized into one who made a safe passage through death itself. When you're baptized into Moses in the olden days, you're baptized into one who secured safe passage through the Red Sea. When you're baptized into Jesus, you're baptized into one who secured safe passage through death itself. So what does it mean to be baptized into Jesus? Many things. But they come to the fore, do they not? And they're dramatically illustrated as we go back to Exodus 14. Jesus himself was buried in the heart of the earth three days, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so as to accomplish our redemption by enduring, if you will, the drowning death we deserved in our place. What does baptism represent? Kids, we often ask, you know, what does communion represent? The bread reminds us of, right? Remember? Jesus' body. And then the cup reminds us of? Jesus' blood. Well, in a similar way, baptism reminds us of a number of things. But just to reemphasize and summarize what we've learned today, baptism reminds us that Jesus died for us and was resurrected. Going under that water and coming up out of the water reminds us that the experience of Jesus on our behalf assures us eternal life. Baptism reminds us in the cleansing waters of baptism, as it were, that our sins are washed away. When we come up out of the water, we're reminded that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, that we are born again unto newness of life. In the physical, we are, you know, we just had a baby, maybe you heard. So a week ago, we had baby Hugo, and he was born through water, right? We speak of this. Did her water break? Did her water break? 
is water associated with natural birth. In a similar way, there's water associated with the spiritual birth. At baptism, we recognize that we are new. We have been born again, and so forth. And then finally, baptism also reminds us that, uh, let me see if I put myself on the spot, if I can go through them again. In Jesus, uh, death, or, or a burial, resurrection, sins washed away. Oh, and the final one that we've been emphasized so much in this sermon, salvation through the waters of judgment. So those especially who are considering baptism, remember that. Baptism reminds us that Jesus was buried for us, that Jesus rose again for us. Therefore, we were buried with him and we will rise again. Baptism reminds us that at our new birth, our sins are washed away. And baptism reminds us that in Jesus Christ, the servant, the greater Moses, we have safe passage through the waters of judgment. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word to reveal and to emphasize to us in so many ways the glories of your great gospel revealed. I pray that you would write them upon the table of our heart that we may not soon forget. I especially pray for those who are considering baptism that you would etch upon their souls the significance of this moment before them. Lord, I pray that you would use your scripture, that you would use your spirit, use the instruction of the parents and others, Lord, who have uh, received your salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone to emphasize to the new believers among us the significance of their walk with Christ, the power of God to save and the sovereignty of his situation, delivering us from the damnation we deserve. We thank you, Lord, that all this is wrapped up in your glorious promise of eternal life in Christ. May he be glorified in uh, our understanding and application of this message today as we leave from this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.